0: Well, first, let me apologize uh, beforehand in case my voice gives out. Uh, like many of you, I've had a, a recent case of the crud. Uh, Dr. Brueggemann, that's an Oklahoma medical term. <laughs> and, uh, But I did want to give this introduction. So on behalf of the Barton-Clinton-Gordy Committee, uh, Phil and Marilyn Keeter, Nancy and Jerry Hudson, my wife Pam and I, we'd like to welcome you to the 50th anniversary of the Barton Clinton Gordy series. Uh, Like my predecessors, I would like to quickly thank uh, some people that have made this presentation and many of these series beforehand possible. But before I start that, Dr. Kroll has asked me to announce that we will have a full DVD series, uh, all four presentations available in the uh, uh, near the Cokesbury register there will be a basket on the left hand side of the register just put your name and address Dr. Kroll said they will bill you and you will have a wonderful collection of these presentations first I would like to acknowledge and thank our sponsor families Dr. and Mrs. L.S. Barton Dr. and Mrs. Fred Clinton and Ivy and Bona Gordy for their generosity that has made this one of the premier lectureships in the country. I think Dr. Brueggemann would agree that this is truly a give, uh, an act of giving theology. So uh, thanks to those families. Thanks also to our Boston Avenue staff, always ably led by our senior minister, Dr. Biggs. We'd like to thank also Brenda Reed, Sherry Goodwin, uh, for all those on the staff that do so much to make this series uh, so wonderful year after year. Thanks also to our wonderful Chancel Choir and to uh, De Panceras for their great leadership and their talents. Thanks to the two Sunday School classes, the Maranatha and the Horizons classes, for the dinner last night and again tonight. The, the meals add uh, warmth and uh, great relationship opportunity for our uh, series. Thanks also to the volunteers that provide and serve the wonderful refreshments at the reception following uh, each presentation. And I'd also like to say a special thanks to our television and to our technical crew. These people are behind the cameras, uh, in the sound room uh, every week, and for all special presentations such as this, they do such a wonderful job, and without them, the lights would dim, and the audio might go away.
1: <laughs> if,
0: if you've um, been with us um, Sunday and Monday, you know you're in for another treat tonight. Our speaker is a noted scholar and theologian. He was William Marcellus McPheeters Professor of Old Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia, for 17 years until his retirement in 2003, and he now serves as Professor Emeritus. He's a graduate of Elmhurst College. He holds a, a, a B.D. from Eden Theological Seminary, a Doctor of Theology from Union Theological Seminary, and a Ph.D. in Education from St. Louis University. He was named the Distinguished Alumnus by the Union Theological Seminary. An ordained minister in the Church of Christ, his life has been devoted to a passionate exploration of Old Testament theology. He is one of the world's leading interpreters of the Old Testament and is a skilled and beloved preacher, and I think we can all attest to that. He's written more than 60 books and he is a contributor to the Living of Questions series and and participated in the Bill Moyers' 1990 PBS television series on Genesis. At lunch, my wife said, you must have been very busy writing. And he said, if you write a little bit every day for 50 years, you don't have to do a lot. (laughs)
1: Last
0: week, while standing in line At a luncheon, I happened to be standing next to the professor of Hebrew Bible uh, right here at Phillips Seminary here in Tulsa, which is also the home to two of our previous presenters. Um, I asked her if she had read Dr. Walter Brueggemann. Her face brightened, her eyes lit up, and she said, oh yes, and she she had read him and went on to name five or six of his books. Then she said she had had the the privilege of hearing him speak, had even met him, and as fate would have it, years later ran into him uh, in an airport. Uh, She then looked at me and said, you know, in my world, he's a rock star. (laughs) After another great anthem by our chancel choir, please welcome back to the pulpit for the concluding presentation of the 2012 Barton-Clinton-Gordy Series, the Reverend Dr. Walter Brigaman.
1: Well, you know, when you do uh, this many uh, presentations, uh, you have two worries, that you will run out of material and that you will run out of people. (laughs) And uh, you hope you run out of both at the same time. I uh, have kept in abeyance uh, this story I guess I don't need to use it, but uh, back in St. Louis, you may recall that the other baseball team was the St. Louis Browns, and they were never very popular, and uh, management decided to move them to Baltimore, where they became the Orioles, but in the last year in St. Louis, the attendance got smaller and smaller and smaller, and you know how the loudspeaker says, "'Ladies and gentlemen,' here are tonight's lineup. On the next to last game, the loudspeaker said, Sir, here are the lineups. (laughs) But you all, uh, you all have hung in heroically, and uh, I'm glad we could do this together. I'm so grateful to you for uh, your uh, willingness uh, to engage me. And uh, the members of the committee and uh, the staff, and particularly Dr. Biggs, has been enormously, have been enormously generous with uh, time and attentiveness and uh, hospitality. And uh, when my wife asked me, why do you go off and do that all the time? I will tell her about you. <laughs> and, uh, and I'll say, uh, sorry you missed that. Well, I, uh, in the last two nights, have uh, tried to uh, line out what I think is the sort of uh, normative crisis uh, in which the church uh, in our society stands, uh, sitting between uh, a theology of scarcity and a theology of abundance, and I believe that our big work is that we must choose I do not believe that we choose once, but I believe we choose and choose and choose. And I think that fits very well with Wesley's notion of sanctification uh, by which he meant making those decisions that will bring our life to greater holiness. Choosing is is a big agenda in the Bible. I thought of five texts... And you may think of some others. In Deuteronomy 30, Moses says, I set before you life and death, therefore choose life. Uh, Joshua 24, a text that's more familiar to you. um, Joshua says, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. Uh, Elijah at Mount Carmel with that contest in which he says, If Baal is God, serve Baal. And if Yahweh is God, serve Yahweh. You cannot do both. Uh, In uh, Psalm 1, it begins the Psalter, Blessed is the person who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or sits in the seat of scoffers, but meditates on the Torah day and night. And uh, then at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, uh, Jesus says, uh, Narrow is the path and uh, the gate that leads to eternal life. And wide is the path that leads to ruin. So he's calling his disciples to decide. Now, writ large, the decision that uh, gospel faith always calls us to is uh, a choice for God or a choice for idols and false gods. But in fact, that big choice between God and idol always comes down to more specific socioeconomic, political, cultural decisions. And so I want to situate that uh, choice about scarcity and abundance or anxiety and trust uh, in, the, in the rubric of, uh, of idolatry and the true God so that we are not only making a decision about God, but we are making a decision about the world and we are making a decision about the kind of selves uh, that we want to be. And in the Sermon on the Mount, as you know, Jesus says to his disciples you cannot serve God and mammon but you got to make that choice and then he the next verse he says don't don't be anxious it is our uh, it is our inability to decide uh, about that that uh, I suppose that keeps us anxious now tonight i got only one idea and i'm going to walk around it a while to use up our time. <laughs> and uh, I, I've uh, done a survey and many of you are older and uh, you have uh, retired from the rat race so it doesn't really pertain to you but I'm going to tell you this so that you can tell your children who I assume are still in the rat race. My son uh, is a sociologist and uh He has uh, written a book uh, about consumerism and his college uh, sends him around to speak to alumni groups and it's older alums who have uh, time to attend that so he's mainly speaking to older alums and he does this critique of consumerism and he says the older alums love it because they think it's a critique of their children. So there you go. So, This is the one idea I want to talk about tonight. I want to ask the question, where shall we position ourselves in order to make these hard, faithful decisions to which we are invited by the gospel? And the answer I want to give is in the practice of Sabbath. So I'm going to talk about Sabbath as creating a zone in our life where we can reflectively and gratefully position ourselves in front of the truth of God's generosity and take it up as our own vocation. So I have... And this, is, this is rather autobiographical because I'm a workaholic... But I assume I'm not the only one because kind of successful people are people who know how to take initiative and move and grab opportunities and maximize things. So I want to think about Sabbath, the fourth commandment of the Big Ten, as being what I think is the most urgent in our society and I suspect the most difficult. As you know, the fourth... I will not talk about all ten, but the fourth commandment on Sabbath comes after the second commandment about no graven images. And I take that second commandment to say the pursuit of commodity, because graven images are gold, silver, precious metal... And the best narrative about graven images in the Old Testament is the narrative of the golden calf in which Aaron says, I just put the gold in and out came a God. And they all bowed down to gold. And Karl Marx picked up that story to talk about commodity fetishism. Well, I suppose you could see it Sunday night the way people caress their Oscars nicely. It's the best thing that could happen to somebody. And as you know, the fourth commandment comes before the tenth commandment. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not practice acquisitiveness. Thou shalt not make acquiring stuff the goal of your life. So I have this Imagination that God or Moses, I don't know which one, or maybe Gerhard von Rod, who is the most important Old Testament teacher in my lifetime, one of them arranged the Ten Commandments uh, so that Sabbath is creating open space for the freedom of the gospel between the pursuit of commodity and the desire to acquire more for our life. And that's why I want to think about this, because we live in a society that believes the pursuit of more will somehow make us safe and will somehow make us happy. And what we know in our heart of hearts is that hustling to get more advantage eventually does not make us safe and does not make us happy because we are the most commodity-ridden society and everybody knows we're not a safe society and the statistics show that we're not a very happy society. Some of us are safe, some of us are happy, but not our society. So that's my launching plan and I want to develop it in two directions. Uh, because as you may know, the Ten Commandments appear in the Old Testament in two versions or in two places. The first one, the one we usually cite, is in Exodus 20 at Mount Sinai, and uh, Moses gets the two tablets with the Ten Commandments on it, and the fourth one is Sabbath. And in that version of the Sabbath commandment, Uh, the commandment says, you shall keep the sixth day and make it holy. For in six days, God created the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, God rested, and you shall rest the way God rested. So what that commandment does is to say that the Sabbath belongs to the structure and the rhythm of creation. And what faithful people need to do is to bring their life in sync with the way in which God has ordered the world. And I suspect that those of us who are connected 24-7, anybody like that here? I I was hosted at this meeting in Portland by my good friend who was running this big conference and I'd be talking to him and he was going like that. I said, I'm over here. Or we multitask. I said to somebody uh, the other day about the Oscars, I love to go to the theater to see a movie because if I stay home and watch it, I think I ought to be doing something else while I am watching. Anybody know about that? I read a book recently, it's entitled Never Say Die, and it's about the problem of aging, in which she argues that except for a very few privileged people, old age is economically and health-wise a dreadful stage for most people. And then she talks about boomers... That must be some of us. I never remember where that is. Who believe that by uh, dieting and working out and cosmetic surgery, you can stay young forever. You can beat creation. You can fool your What she goes on to say is that that's simply a marketing strategy and uh, people find out too late that it's not true. So getting in sync with the rhythm of creation means to recognize that we are daily in our life moving toward death, and the big deal is to prepare ourselves to die a good death. So this text in Exodus 20 probably refers to two other texts. It probably is a direct reference to Genesis 1, you know how Genesis 1 goes, God created for six days and He said it's good and it's good and it's good and finally He said it's very good and then at the beginning of Genesis 2 it says and God rested and God made the seventh day holy now when you think about it, that's an extraordinary act on God's part to decide that I am not going to the office today to do anything about creation because I need a break and because creation is reliable because seed time and harvest and summer and winter and cold and heat will not cease from the earth. Which suggests, does it not, that God is not a workaholic, that God is not overly stressed, Because, you see, what we workaholics really think is if we stop for a minute, everything will fall apart. And sometimes it does. But God knows better than that, so that God has ordered our common life to create space not for shopping, not for working out, not for watching sports. Those are not Sabbath. But Sabbath is creating waiting space with outstretched hands for gifts that we cannot receive as long as we are hustling. When I first got an insight about this, I'm not very good at Sabbath, but I made a decision I wouldn't watch sports on Sunday. I was astonished at how big my life got and I had all these hours and the test of it was that I didn't even watch the Cardinals when they were in the World Series on Sunday. I thought, I'm pretty good. John Wesley would like that. The other text that you probably do not know about in in Exodus 25... This is, this is the text where when people start reading Genesis and going to read the Bible through, this is where they quit. <laughs> because when you get to Exodus 25, it says, it sounds like it was written by an Episcopal priest, You shall make the tabernacle, and it will be made out of yellow and orange and yarn, and it will be six cubits high and kept cubits wide, and the poles will be long, and there will be rings on the pole, and you put a lamp and you'll make it on bronze. It goes on like that for seven chapters. And then you get seven more chapters, it said, "And then they, uh, Moses took the yarn and he made it, and he made it seven cubits wide, it repeats it all. You can skip the second part if you do the first part carefully. But what interpreters have noticed is in that chapters, there are seven speeches by God about how to make the tabernacle, seven speeches. And the seventh speech is about the Sabbath, which means that this text is arranged to match creation in Genesis 1. Seven days of creation, seven speeches, seventh day for Sabbath, seventh speech about Sabbath. They're making a world, the priests are making a world a restfulness in the presence of God. The seventh speech that ends in Exodus 31 says, You better keep the Sabbath or you're going to die. I, I didn't dream that up. <laughs> and then it says, this is most amazing, and then it says, Because on the seventh day, God rested and was refreshed. It's hard for a Calvinist to imagine that God needs to be refreshed. Now, let me tell you about that word refreshed. The the Hebrew word nephesh, which we translate soul or self, is a noun, and it occurs 2,000 times, lots of them but it's used as a verb only three times, and this is one of them. So what that word that means that we translate refreshed means God got God's self back. Because God's self had been depleted by the work of creation. Now, that doesn't fit with our orthodox notions of God, that God could be pooped. But God is pooped, and tired, exhausted people are not the best folks in the world. They are easily manipulated. They become conformists. They become depressed. So God resolved that God would not stay depleted but would create space to become God's full self again, and then understood that God does not want any of us to live depleted lives, which eventually happens to us if our life is defined by the rat race of scarcity. So Sabbath is a day for Basking in God's abundance of good food and much time. So, Sabbath is work stoppage that says to our children and our grandchildren that my life does not consist in being productive and in being a consumer. That is not who I am, and that is not what my identity is about. My identity is given to me as a gift when I pause to remember that I am a creature who is in sync with the way the Creator has ordered the world of seed time and harvest and summer and winter and cold and heat. Well, I think we have to make, pay attention to that because we now live in a technological era where we don't have to pay attention to any of that if we choose not to. And that rat race leads to an overly important sense of self. It leads to a sense that I haven't done enough yet. Yet. Somebody just pointed out to me that all of these wonderful television commercials that offer you a good deodorant and a good beer and a good car really are communicating to us as we watch that right now you have a deficiency. You've not yet got it right. You can if you buy this. But right now you're kind of an inadequate failure. That's what the that's what the theology of... Scarcity wants us to believe about ourselves. Now, the second trajectory of Sabbath is in Deuteronomy 5. After Moses and Israel cross the Jordan, or as they are about to cross the Jordan, Moses repeats the whole business again, and he repeats the Ten Commandments And it's just like Exodus 20 in Deuteronomy 5, except for the Sabbath commandment. The fourth commandment is different. I think Moses took a little liberty. Because in Deuteronomy, the Sabbath commandment says, On the seventh day you shall rest, you and your son and your daughter... slave and your female slave and the immigrant that lives in your community and your ox and your ass. I think it's really good to rest your ass. (laughs) That's what the text says. I'm just reporting that to you. Because it says, and on the seventh day Your son and your daughter and your slaves and your donkey will all be like you. It is the day of social equality. It is a day when all social differentiations are defeated and we just get to be brothers and sisters. And the commandment finishes by saying and you shall remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out nothing about creation now it's about exodus emancipation from overwork now it's like it's like being able to rest from the brick quota of pharaoh Because in Pharaoh's Egypt, there is never any Sabbath for anybody. My son is a wholesale lumber rep. And uh, it's a hard time to be a lumber rep because nobody's buying lumber. But he says, and if any of you are sales reps, you know this. He says, if you meet your quota, you do not get thanked. You get a bigger quota. You will never do enough. And I heard a Coach Parisian of uh, Notre Dame once say, as a football coach, you can never win because if you win, you just get a bigger point spread next week. And then you have to beat the point spread. And if you beat it, so you're always catching up. Sabbath is a pause in that rat race of productivity. Now it is not a question of being in sync with the rhythms of creation. Now it is being in the presence of the brothers and the sisters in the neighborhood, the ones for whom we do not have time or interest all week long who turn out to be our brothers and sisters at rest so that Sabbath is not for money making but Sabbath is for community making well I don't know how it is with you but some of you must do Sunday the way I do Sunday you get home from church and you put your good clothes away and you sit down and you just sit down but we have this funny little practice in the Episcopal Church at the end of the service. Uh, you know, they have a very high view of the Eucharist. So we got this little box that contains uh, bread and wine, and every Sunday we commission some lay people to take the sacramental elements to people who can't get to church. I'm thinking about this. They are, they are our representatives of connecting with people who couldn't be present for the meeting. And if you are like me, when you are engaged in the rat race, you won't have a lot of time to think of the brothers and the sisters because they are competitors or interruptions or inconveniences. And now it is a day for the brother and the sister. So the book of Deuteronomy, you probably haven't studied it lately, but the book of Deuteronomy is the great manifesto that imagines the world as a neighborhood. It's all about widows and orphans and immigrants and poor people. These are the big four in the Old Testament who are at risk in a patriarchal society. We might have a slightly different list. We'd have immigrants and poor people. We might not list widows and orphans, but that's how they list it. And the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' guideline for how you act out neighborliness. It's very radical. It's got things in there like it says, You shall not collect interest on loans to your neighbors. Now that'll give you chill bumps when you remember who Jesus said our neighbors are. It's got a commandment in there that says if you make a loan to a poor person, uh, you can't take their one coat for collateral for the loan. You can keep it all day for collateral, but when the sun goes down, you've got to take it home so they can sleep in it. You can pick it up for collateral the next morning. Can you imagine doing that with a 30-year loan? <laughs> I think the idea is to make it so inconvenient to so sell just keep your coat old risk the loan. There's a law in there in Deuteronomy twenty four sixteen that says you cannot withhold payment from a worker. You can't tell your hireling that the checks in the mail you gotta pay him the day he earns the money. So I want you to know, Dr. Biggs, I have a postcard. All it says is Deuteronomy twenty four sixteen. Because I go around to churches and I have a very difficult time sometime collecting my stipend, you know, because they put it in the box for the church treasure, and then the church treasure's gone for three weeks, and so I just mail them the postcard. I want you to know he did it tonight. we're all square <laughs> but but you see you see what what these laws are about. It is an argument that the practice of economy must be subordinated to the well-being of the neighborhood. And the economy is simply a way to enhance the neighborhood and the cleavage between the haves and the have-nots. That's what Sabbath's about. And the end of chapter 24 says that if you harvest your grapes... Don't go back and pick up what you dropped. Leave them for the widow and the orphan and the immigrant. And when you cut your wheat, don't go back and pick up. Leave it for the widow and the orphan and, and the uh, the immigrant and the third crop. So it lists the money crops of grain, wine, and olive oil. It's a welfare program. It's a provision that the community makes for the people who do not have resources And some scholars believe that it is the oldest welfare program in the history of the world that Sabbath is an awareness that our life is about our neighbor. And then you may know that in the book of Deuteronomy, after you get seven days, in Deuteronomy 15, you get a law about... Seven years. It's called the year of release, which says that at the end of seven years, if, poor, if a poor person owes you money, cancel the debt. Now, I'll give you a little Hebrew grammar. I know you've been wanting that. He, biblical Hebrew has no adverbs. The way it expresses the intensity of an adverb, it repeats the verb. So it says, give. If you want to say, really give, it says, give, give. Right in the sentence, give, give. In this law, about the year of release, there are five absolute infinitives. You can't spot them in English. There are more intense verbs in this law than anywhere else in the Old Testament. Which is Moses saying, I mean this. And then he says, do not be hard-hearted or tender or tight-fisted, that's what he says, about granting poor people space to live their lives because you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord God brought you out to a good place. And then, as you know, after you do seven days and after you do seven years, one time in the Old Testament you will come to seven times seven years, which is the year of the Jubilee. The Jubilee year, according to the Bible, is the year when everybody was given back the stuff that they have lost in the rough and tumble of the economy because the Bible intends that there should not be a permanent underclass, but the economy should be organized so that everybody has a viable chance to participate in this. And there are people who believe that at least in the Gospel of Luke, which I said was the most radical, that what Jesus is doing, paragraph by paragraph, is that he is acting out the Jubilee year, which of course subverts all conventional economics. Now it would depend on how far you want to entertain that side of kind of radical thinking. But what if we, with some intentionality and discipline and regularity, what if we created those open spaces in our weekly schedule in which we are not taking notes about the next thing we're going to do, but we are simply waiting and pondering in gratitude the abundance of God the Creator who overwhelms us with more than we need. So I will finish with one other text and then make one additional comment and then I will be done. The text you know very well where Jesus says in Matthew 11... "'All you who are weary and heavy laden, "'all you who are pooped from the rat race, "'come unto me, for my yoke is easy "'and my burden is light.'" Now what you need to know is that the word yoke is used in the Bible for taxation by the Roman Empire all you who are worn out by the demands of the empire, all you who are used up by the rat race, give your life over to the easy yoke of Jesus who doesn't ask much. He just asks you to give yourself away for the neighborhood. Last comment that I want to make I now worship in an Episcopal church where we celebrate the Eucharist every Sunday. But it doesn't matter how often you do it. Well, it matters, but it doesn't matter. But it's the same when you have communion that you are handed that bread. And I have come to think that this moment of handing of the bread is kind of a metaphor for Sabbath. We do not take the bread. We receive the bread. We receive the bread as a gift, and we know that loaves abound because these loaves come out of the heart of the Creator And we are in a receptive mode. And we ponder the gift of life that God wants us to have in abundance. And we don't have to hustle. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to run. We just have to put our hands out and let life go come to us. It is my conviction that if the church practiced that with regularity and discipline, something would happen to the politics and economics of our society. Because when you are in a receptive mode, you cannot be mean-spirited. This yoke is so easy, and this burden is so light, and we are invited to it. Very good news.